0: I love Colorado companies. I love local and Boyer's Coffee is one of those. They were founded in Denver back in 1965 by Bill Boyer. I start my day with them every day and they have a number of wonderful flavors. In fact, as we speak, I'm drinking hazelnut coffee. Boyer's Coffee, they have been brewing great coffee for more than 50 years now and their roasting team taste test every batch of coffee every time. That's why the quality remains outstanding. You can find them at boyerscoffee.com and all of your favorite stores. Love my steel power tools. S-T-I-H-L steeldealers.com. There are more than 9,000 dealers around the country. Getting ready for the uh, winter season. You may need a blower. Maybe there's some cleanup still around the yard. A blower will help. You can use your trimmer still to get uh, everything ready for the winter. And then, of course, next year, make sure you break out your chainsaws. They have wonderful equipment. They've been a power equipment partner of the Colorado Rockies for a number of years. And I love all of their equipment. I have a garage full of it. SteelDealers.com, S-T-I-H-L. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, it's always baseball season. Let's talk about National League MVP and National League Cy Young. Plus, Drew talks about CU's big win over UCLA, CSU's win over Wyoming, and it's part two of Drew's chat with Fox Sports analyst and former CU quarterback Joel Klatt. What's it going to take for CU to get back to national prominence?
1: So top-end talent is the whole name of the game, and, and they've got to start competing with SD on the recruiting trail, competing with Oregon on the recruiting trail, so they can get back to a point where they can potentially win a division and win a conference. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Drew Goodman Podcast, show number 70. A lot to do today. We're going to talk about some of the postseason awards in baseball. We're going to talk more college football locally and nationally, and we're going to have a conversation, part two, in fact, of our conversation with Joel Klatt, who's doing a marvelous job at Fox and the former CU standout. But uh, we're going to begin the show with a couple of quotes. I love quotes, and there's uh, a whole basket full of sports quotes through the years that uh, have left you saying, huh, what? Did he really say that? For instance, remember when Australian great golfer Greg Norman, after winning a tournament, said, I owe a lot to my parents, especially my mother and father. Yeah, that would make sense, uh, Greg. Your mother and father would be your parents. I would agree with that. Um, how about Philadelphia 76ers head coach back in the day, Doug Collins? He was talking about how good the bad boy Pistons were. He said, anytime Detroit scores more than 100 points and holds the other team below 100 points, they almost always win. I'm just curious the occasion that when they scored more than 100 and held the other team below 100, that they didn't win. I think we're still uh, doing research. On that. And then a guy that uh, I I always admired growing up because he pitched uh, for the Mets and he was a great character, the late uh, relief pitcher Tug McGraw. Uh, He was asked after striking out uh, the Kansas City Royals' Willie Wilson for the final out in the 1980 World Series to give the Phillies their first World Championship. Um, And he was asked about whether he preferred to play on grass or astroturf. And he responded by saying, well, I've never smoked AstroTurf. That's good to hear. All right. We move to baseball to begin the show today because, after all, that is uh, kind of the foundation of what we do here on the Drew Goodman Podcast. But we do dabble in other sports because we have great interest in other sports as well. There was um, good news, great news, potentially, with what we heard from Pfizer earlier in the week that uh, they've made great progress with the vaccine, could be out by the end of the year. I expect uh, several other companies, as we all do, that have been close with a vaccine to come out, and we can finally, hopefully, start to get to the other side of this pandemic. And I'm relating it to sports because the NBA has come out and said they're going to play a 72-game season beginning right around Christmas. The NHL is still trying to determine what they do. Everything is related to money and and being able to put people in seats. Uh, Otherwise, owners are really going to be reluctant naturally to start seasons. Baseball is the best position to the major sports because they just got through their season. They're still not going to start if everything Begins on time until April 1st. So they have some separation, more time for people uh, to have the opportunity, hopefully, though it's going to take some time to get vaccines distributed, but more people to get uh, inoculated, if you will, uh, with the vaccine. The other thing in baseball's favor is that it is an outdoor sport, clearly. So uh, hopefully we can continue to make progress because, again, major league owners are not going to rush to start the season if they can't sell hot dogs and beers and and park cars and and, and have ticket revenue. It is real. They lost, uh, as an industry, billions of dollars last year. It is going to adversely affect the free agent market. I think I said last week, and I'll hold to this, I think the top free agents are still going to, quote unquote, get paid. But there's going to be a whole lot of other middle to even upper middle class, if you will, free agents that are not going to have the years or the dollars um, or the competition for their services that they uh, felt that they would have had uh, we not been going through this pandemic and Major League owners having lost what they did last year. So hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be in in a Different situation come April first, and we can't have people in the ballpark, and and that will help move this thing along from a, a, a player standpoint, from a monetary standpoint as well. For your Rockies, I think they're going to fall in the same boat as virtually everybody else. They're going to, you know, they're going to sit back and be very cautious in terms of spending money, and it's unfortunate in that this was the year Dick Montfort had come out a year ago and said that they're going to have enough money off the books where they could be far more aggressive in free agency that means uh, the moves that they're going to make unless it's smaller on the free agent market i mentioned a couple of guys that uh, hopefully they will have interest in that i don't think will break the bank Uh, michael brantley being uh, one of them james mccann being another i mentioned last week Uh, other than that you know maybe it's trade possibilities so we'll see there are some awards that have been already given out in Major League Baseball as we taped this on a Wednesday afternoon. There are some of the big ones that have yet to be announced, and they will be announced uh, as this podcast uh, gets circulated around. But I'm going to uh, kind of break down for you the uh, National League and American League MVP and the National League and American League Cy Young and tell you who I think uh, should win. And uh, I also want to mention one award that was already handed out was the proverbial no-brainer, and that was Don Mattingly being the National League Manager of the Year. I mean, you're talking about managing a club in Miami. They were supposed to be horrendous again, even in a shortened season, and they're still rebuilding. And that they uh, go to the postseason and, uh, you know, have a, have a terrific run. So that was a no-brainer. Kevin Cash, smallest payroll in baseball. Tampa was number one seed in the American League. They, they go six games in the World Series. That, to me, also uh, a no-brainer in terms of those awards. All right, let's talk about... National League MVP. For me, there's there's three candidates, and there's somebody that's head and shoulders above everyone else. There's Freddie Freeman of Atlanta, postseason team, really good team. There's Mookie Betts. I think you've seen what he's done with LA. And there's Manny Machado, and I think you're very familiar, Rockies fans, especially with what he's done now that he's situated himself in San Diego. Freddie Freeman's OPS Plus. We'll throw some numbers at you, some analytics. 186, which dwarfs Manny Machado, who comes in at 158. And Mookie Betts at 149. Again, that is uh, park-adjusted on-base plus slugging percentage. Freeman's slash line: he had 341. He was on base 46.2% of the time. And he had a slugging percentage of 640. He was over 1,100 in raw OPS. Betts was at 927. Machado at 950. Uh, If I were able to select one player going forward and saying, "Who, who would you like to have the next half a dozen years? as great as Freddie Freeman is, I would take Mookie Betts. And I think every GM in baseball would take Mookie Betts. And, you know, he, along with Mike Trout, I think clearly are the best players in baseball. You're not going to do poorly if you took Manny Machado either. But for the exercise of MVP National League in this abbreviated 2020 season, it has to be Freddie Freeman. One other stat I'll throw at you. Runs created per game. Freddie Freeman 11.4, Mookie Betts 7.5, Manny Machado 6.7. It should be a slam the gavel down. The National League MVP is Freddie Freeman. The American League MVP. Interesting race. Jose Abreu of the White Sox, Jose Ramirez of the Cleveland Indians. And DJ LeMahieu, I think you've heard of him, of the New York Yankees. I believe you heard of that uh, club he plays for as well. OPS Plus, we'll begin there. DJ actually the highest, 177, followed by Abreu at 166, Ramirez at 163. DJ's slash line, he was the only one who produced uh, above 1,000 OPS. Abreu was at 987, Ramirez was at 993, fairly close. DJ was at 1011. DJ won a batting title, first player uh, in the modern history of the game to win a, a batting title now in both leagues. He hit 364. Uh, you want to use the runs created graph. DJ was number one at 10.2. Then it was Abreu at 7.6. Actually, Ramirez at 8.7. Then Abreu at 7.6. So, you know, some of the raw numbers would lead one to believe that, uh, you know, DJ LeMayhew legitimately could be the American League MVP. I don't, as much as I'd love to see it, because I'm a huge fan of, of DJ. As I, uh, you know, I think he's a great person, and and obviously we're we're biased to watch him play here in Denver for a number of years. The one thing that I think works against DJ is that he played in 50 of the 60 games. Remember, he was out initially. Abreu played in all 60 for the White Sox, and Ramirez played in 58 of the 60. Cleveland. Was a, a really poor offensive team. They did it because they were pitching rich in terms of getting to the postseason. So Ramirez really helped carry them uh, offensively. Uh, you can make that argument also for DJ, quite frankly, because the Yankees dealt with so many injuries. Their they're two big guys, uh, Judge and Stanton, were out frequently. I, I don't think you'd go wrong picking any of these guys. I think if. If I had the proverbial gun to my head, I would pick Abreu, but I'd love to see if uh, DJ uh, wins it. But I'm going to say Abreu is going to win it and, and probably would give a slight nod to him. He had 18 home runs this year. Some of the uh, counting numbers uh, were, were better for Abreu. National League Cy Young, Trevor Bauer, Jacob deGrom, you Darvish of the Cubs. I will mention this. you Darvish did not finish as strong as... Uh, He has started out. I mean, he was brilliant for about five, six weeks. Trevor Bauer, to me, has got to be the guy. ERA, 173. Uh, Darvish is at 201. Jacob deGrom at 238. Uh, Whip, .790. That's uh, walks plus hits per inning pitch, which, I mean, that's absurd. The league average is around 1.3, and Bauer was at .79. DeGrom was below one, so was you. Darvish. Strikeouts uh, per inning pitch, Bauer was... uh, was slightly behind Jacob deGrom in that category, about 12-plus batters per nine innings. DeGrom almost 14, You Darvish around 11. Uh, The War uh, wins above replacement, all very similar, 2-7 for Bauer, 2-6 for deGrom, 2-7 for Darvish. But all of the numbers just slightly better. Opponent batting average, opponent on base percentage, slugging percentage for Trevor Bauer. So I think Trevor Bauer, who is a free agent, huge name out there. I think he should win the National League Cy Young. If I'm going to take one pitcher in baseball, one starter in baseball, I'm going to go with Jacob deGrom, kind of similar to what I was saying earlier about Mookie Betts. Freeman's going to win it. If I'm taking one guy from that list, it'd be Mookie Betts. Bauer's going to win it in the National League, but I would take Jacob deGrom. Uh, if I could grab one starting pitcher. American League Cy Young, excuse me, Cy Young, I don't know if it's as close, Shane Bieber, Hyunjin uh, Ryu, excuse me, Hun Jin Ryu, I used to say his name every day when uh, we'd see the Dodgers, and Kenna Maeda. And here's something to me that just kind of blows you away about how great the Dodgers are and have been. They let Ryu go they trade Kenna Maeda, and those two guys are both going to finish in the top three in the American League in the Cy Young in all likelihood, and yet the Dodgers are the world champions. They're the unquestioned best team in baseball, despite giving away two pitchers that finish in the top three in the Cy Young Award in the American League. That, to me, speaks to their great depth. In their organization Maybe more than any other stat You can throw out there It's really remarkable The Cy Young winner in the American League Is going to be Shane Bieber He had the lowest ERA, 163 It's a run better than Ryu and Maeda Uh, The whip was was .866 Maeda was .750 Strikeouts per nine innings Bieber at 14.2 His war was better than anybody else Shane Bieber of Cleveland Is going to be the And should be the American League Cy Young award winner. So there you have the uh, the breakdown, if you will, on uh, the awards, and we'll see how that all turns out uh, coming up. I'm going to segue now to college football. A reminder coming up in a few minutes, uh, part two of my conversation with Joel Klatt, the uh, local kid who made good on the gridiron and has made good in uh, in broadcasting as well. But before we get to that, I want to Talk a little bit about uh, the University of Colorado and Colorado State. CU, as uh, we tape this, is 1-0. and They had uh, a big win over UCLA. They went up 35-7, to and then it got a little dicey, and they hung on and won. A couple of things I take away from that in Carl Durrell's debut as the University of Colorado uh, football coach. He told me, he was on this podcast two weeks ago, and he he told me he felt like defensively they're going to be ahead of where they are offensively, simply because they have so many more guys returning on defense. They were going to break in a new quarterback. Well, that new quarterback turned out to be Sam Neuer. And Sam Neuer, you know, was terrific. We knew that he's a good athlete. I mean, after all, he was flipped over at one point to the defensive side of the ball as a safety 6'4 and 220. And uh, he wins the job. As the quarterback this year, uh, you know Tyler Lytle did get in. In fact, when he got in, to me that was a little bit curious because the Bucks were up at that point. What was it? Was it twenty-one seven or twenty-one nothing? They had a chance really to turn out the lights. They had just gotten a turnover. They have half a field to work with. Obviously, Neuer's playing pretty well. He's playing really well, not pretty well. And Durrell puts Lytle in the game, almost as if to throw him a bone because the competition was so close leading up to the opener. I didn't feel like that was the time for it. And it ends up a situation where they don't do anything and they punt, even though they had the football in plus territory. And and to me, you want to. I understand that you want to honor that kid and the fact that the competition was so close. But Neuer's playing well, and you have a chance, um, really, to to kind of step on the throat of UCLA at that point in time. But uh, it it all turned out well for Colorado. They held off a a late UCLA run. Neuer ends up rushing for 64 yards. He threw for 257 and a touchdown. Also uh, had a rushing touchdown in there. So hats off to CU. It was a good start. And how about Jarek Broussard? You know, Alex Fontenot wasn't available for this game, the returning leading rusher for the Buffs. And Broussard goes out in his first collegiate game and has wiggle to him, runs hard, physical for, for not the biggest guy in the world, 187 yards and three touchdowns on the ground. That was impressive. So, uh, a great first ball game for Carl Durrell and the Buffs. Turning our attention now north of Boulder to Fort Collins in Colorado State. You know, Colorado State, I thought, disappointing first uh, ball game uh, in the new regime. In, in Fort Collins. And then you had week two, they're playing the border war. And for those that follow Colorado State, all you can think about is the fact that they have struggled to win any sort of rivalry game, whether it's against Wyoming, whether it's against the University of Colorado, or whether it's against Air Force. It didn't matter. It didn't even matter how what kind of start they had. They would lose in the end. And it's why, you know, Coach Bobo is now the offensive coordinator at South Carolina and the fact that Colorado State made a change to Steve Adazio. Well, they bounced back in week two. And one of the things that I took away from watching that game against Wyoming was a 34-24 win. Uh, number one, they, they beat a, a rival and they beat a good football team because Wyoming has, has been consistently uh, good. And, and under Craig Bull, uh, I, I have such great respect and admiration for Coach Bull. I've done a number of his games over the last several years. Uh, they line up. They're physical. They get the most out of their kids. And, and he is a, a really good recruiter. They, they have talent up there. And a lot of times people think they do it with you know with mirrors and, and that sort of thing. They don't. And Colorado State, the biggest thing, again, that I took away – they, they're playing more like Wyoming plays under Craig Bull, and it's only two games into the Adazio regime. They are physical. They are so much different than they've been the last few years where they almost became a finesse team. So uh, Colorado State uh, ran the football. Uh, they ran the football defensively. Those are hallmarks of teams that want to be physical not just talk about it. And uh, they settled on Patrick O'Brien. It's probably controversial in the first week when he didn't uh, start and just got in late in that football game against Fresno State. Big, strong kid. He's 6'5", 240. He can run a little bit, but uh, you know he can stand in the pocket and deliver the football. And they look like a much better offensive team with him at quarterback. So again, a tip of the cap to, uh, to Colorado State on getting that victory uh, over Wyoming and finally winning a rivalry game. And uh, a tip of the cap to Carl Durrell in Colorado uh, as they begin in uh, Boulder with a victory over UCLA. All right, it's time for our conversation part two with Joel Klatt. And we're going to pick up right here. I, I asked Joel if he could look into the crystal ball. And is it possible for Colorado to return to national prominence on a regular basis, on the gridiron,
1: I think it's going to be difficult, and and there's really only one measuring stick, uh, Drew, and that is uh, how they do recruiting. Um, that's the, that's the only that's the only measuring stick for any program, and that is the lifeblood and of this sport. And you know, they have got to find a way to start winning battles in Southern California for top-end talent. They've got to start winning battles uh, for defensive linemen, in particular in the state of Utah, which, which develops a lot of defensive linemen. And then they've got to make sure that they're retaining the top talent in the state of Colorado. And I don't think that they've done any of those things very well. Um, and and so to me, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really care what scheme they run you know, how good of a practice coach um, this play, this guy is or isn't or so on and so forth, the entire deal is recruiting. And so all you've got to do is follow recruiting and follow how these guys are doing on that trail, and, and you'll start to see whether it can or will turn around in the next couple of years. And candidly, they've got some work to do, you know. You, did you know that of uh, the playoff teams – in the era of the college football playoff, there's only been three teams that have made the playoffs that have not had an average recruiting rank in the previous four years to, the, to that playoff of, of under 15, right? So basically, if you're not recruiting in the top 15 annually, you're not going to go to the playoffs. Um, and, and that's, that's something that, that is a bar. Those programs are Oregon in the first year, uh, Washington, and Michigan State. So we haven't even seen any in the last three or four seasons. So top end talent is the whole name of the game and, and they've got to start competing with SC on the recruiting trail, competing with Oregon on the recruiting trail so they can get back to a point where they can potentially win a division and, and win a conference. But until they start recruiting at that level, I think it's, it's, to be honest, foolish to expect the results. Um, uh, that are in line with something different than the way that you're recruiting.
0: You'd be a perfect guy to have this discussion with. And and I have said this so many times, Joel, and we know how toxic social media can be and how, you know, far off base social media can be. And we understand fandom. It's a derivation of the, of the word fanatic. So, so people lose their marbles. I get all that Um, in football. Coaches, for me, of the four major sports, two of which you played one, you know, both two of them you played professionally. So um they can have the greatest influence in the game of football by far. And then it's, you know, you can go two, three, four in any order with baseball, basketball and hockey. What I'm trying to warm to here is it is always about the players. It is always about talent. You, can't, you can take Tony La Russa, one of the great managers of all time, and if he's managing the Detroit Tigers this year, guess what? They ain't winning. And you can take Bill Belichick, who's struggling with the talent he has right now and as great a coach as he is, they ain't winning. You have to have the Jimmys and Joes.
1: There's no question about it. And And you look at right now – Let me just give you some some statistics to to prove what we're talking about. Right now in the country, well, I should say in in the Power 5 conferences, there are 113 players that were recruited as five-star recruits, okay? 113. Of those 113, 53 of them are at four schools. Four. Wow. That's it. Wow. And we're talking about 65 programs, and four of them have – Essentially, you know, 48, 49% of the top-end talent. Those schools, everybody knows them. Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia. Those, That's it. So then you start looking a little bit deeper. Did you know that in the entire conference of the ACC, there are only 15 five-star players that were recruited as five-star players at any, you know, given point? Fifteen, that's it, total. Mm -hmm. Eleven of them are on Clemson's roster. In the Big Ten, it's 20 total in the conference, and 14 are on Ohio State's roster, right? Like, y- you cannot overcome those type of discrepancies within recruiting. It's just not possible. And, and uh, until you start recruiting at the top end in your conference, if you're not one of the top two teams in your conference in recruiting – You're probably not going to win it, Drew. You're just not, right? Like, and to expect otherwise is foolhardy. And you're just going to spin your wheels. You're going to spend too much money in buyouts and you're going to be frustrated when you shouldn't. A big, a big thing that I always talk about is that fan bases really need to know their own program and, and know themselves. If, if they're, if they're going to be, at least in my estimation, like happy fans and not just always depressed. And, and a big part of that is, is know what you should be in recruiting. No, if if they have achieved that, and then what's the expectation for the season? And I say all that to, to tell you that for my alma mater, I would love for them to win the division. I would love for them to win the conference. But until they start recruiting at the top end in their division or their conference, it's just probably not going to happen, folks.
0: Yeah. I've, I've been saying this for a while, Joel, and, I, and I've heard you pontificate uh, on this as well. There's now really – basically three tiers in college football. There are the absolute, you know, elite teams that truly, they're the ones that are competing for the national championship. You, you mentioned it. You didn't mention LSU. They won it last year, but LSU can recruit in that level. You know, we know Alabama, we know Ohio State, we know Clemson, Georgia. It may be, though we haven't seen it on the defensive side of the ball, maybe, and this probably a reach, Oklahoma. So we're talking about five Four, five, six schools. Then there's that next grouping of, you know, good programs that are traditionally in the top 20, top 25 in the nation, the Penn States, the Wisconsins, the, the, the Oregons, the Southern Cows. And then there's kind of everybody else beyond that. And maybe occasionally they sneak in and have a, you know, a nine win season and maybe can upset one of those schools, not in the elite, but that next tier. So the question is, where where is college football going as you look into that crystal ball over the next half a dozen years?
1: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and and I would I would tell you that I actually think the playoff, while exciting, the college football playoff, while exciting, has actually really hurt the sport because it's created that separation way too high um, in the programs that we're talking about. There's really at the start of the year. Uh, to be honest with you, there's like five programs that could potentially win the national championship. That's about it. And and th- those that tell you otherwise are, are, you know, trying to live in some utopian society. Now, you talked about that next tier of teams. Let me give you some evidence of of why the college football playoff has made it hard on fan bases and the rest of us to evaluate the sport properly. Notre Dame right now is in the midst of one of their most successful stretches in their school's history. and And you would never know it because they haven't won a playoff game, right? So we just kind of write them off as like, well, they're never going to beat Clemson. And maybe they do this week, and maybe they don't. I'm not sure, but especially with Lawrence out. But you get what I'm trying to say. Like, Notre Dame, we don't put in that class. And, yet, did you know they're trying to win double-digit games in a season for the fourth consecutive year this year? Now, maybe they don't because of the new COVID schedule, but that's what they're trying to do. And, and if they do so, it would be four consecutive years. Do you know how many times in their history they've won double-digit games in four consecutive seasons? Is it never? Never. It's never. And when people hear that, they're like, oh, my gosh, that's, that's crazy. Yes, it is crazy. And it also just goes to prove our point that we're probably evaluating and watching college football through the wrong prism, you know. And so there are – different levels of team and programs. And that doesn't mean that those programs aren't achieving at a high level. It just means that they're not going to win the national championship. So right, I, right. I think that it is. So you ask what's going to happen in the future. If, if you were to ask me, I, I think that it's, it's, there's so much to go into this, but when you're talking about new transfer rules coming into play and the national or excuse me, the name image and likeness rules coming into play, I actually think that it's going to drive some parity, And the reason is, is because, If you are, like, for instance, Ohio State right now on their team has seven kids that were five-star recruits that are starters on their team, okay? Okay. Of those 14, seven are starters. Well, rather than being the 14th guy who's not a starter, who's a five-star kid on a roster, wouldn't you rather be the only five-star kid at Colorado and then, you know, Gebhardt or whoever's up there still in in the car dealership business throws your name on a billboard and you get a 100 grand? Right? Because being the only five-star kid at Colorado, a big fish in a small pond, it's probably more beneficial from a monetary standpoint to you than being the 14th kid in Columbus and not being able to get a name, image, and likeness deal. So, name, image, and likeness is going to be an interesting deal. And it's not just the, the big money schools that are going to take advantage. I think it's the smaller schools that even don't have that type of money that have a booster or businesses within their, uh, their area that can put kids on billboards or do things with them social media-wise, and it's going to pay for them to be the best player on that team. Because as you know, throughout baseball or whatever sport, from a marketing perspective, it always pays to be the best player on the team rather than just a great player on a loaded team from a monetary standpoint. So I actually think that parity may be coming to college football a little bit as it it relates to the separation of some of those five-star athletes.
0: That is a that's fascinating. I hadn't I hadn't really taken it that far, but to listen to you express that, I think there's validity to that. I really do. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's always about the dollar signs and the Benjamins. So, uh, I think there is something to that. I would like because we all uh, as, as sports fans admire what takes place and in late March and early April, and that's March Madness. And we we always want a Cinderella team. We always want that team that's that seemingly overachieving in um, some school that is competing with the proverbial big boys. If we get to an eight-team college football playoff, despite the fact that we, you know, both agree there's a, there's a super elite grouping where they're really the only ones that can win a national championship. Would that open the door for a somewhat of a, a Cinderella type of team, where you have a great Saturday and all of a sudden now you move on and you're in the semifinals uh, of the college football playoff? Do you see that occurring?
1: Um, potentially, I will just tell you that you know I think that the term or or Cinderella has been kind of stolen by the NCAA tournament in basketball, so we think of Butler. Or um, uh, you know who was it George Washington uh, or was it George Mason I can't remember you, you know we we think of those t- type teams the 15 seed that that wins whereas in, in college football because of the separation um, just within even the Power Five you know the equivalent to a Cinderella in football is probably more like Oklahoma State rather than like Butler. So don't look at, at, oh, it's got to be from one of the non-power conferences. I actually think because of what I talked about earlier in terms of the recruiting rankings and who actually gets into the playoff, but when you reduce it down to, let's say, eight, for the sake of argument, only eight teams in college football go, to get into that eight, a Cinderella would end up being like Oklahoma State. And the reason I bring up Oklahoma State is because in the last four years, the average of their recruiting ranking has been 40th in the country. So to get all the way in there, that's a Cinderella story. Yeah. And I don't think that we view it as such, you know, Drew, because when you say Cinderella, people are thinking like, well, when can Boise State and UCF and, and Cincinnati and BYU and all these other schools, that's what you think of. But in, in my mind, when I think of a Cinderella in college football, I think of Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, Colorado, like Washington State. Those would be massive Cinderella stories uh, to potentially get in the playoff. Now, Will we see that? I think that we're going to see expansion coming. There's no doubt. They're going to need the revenue more than anything else, in particular with the revenue loss due to COVID. So we're going to see an expansion of the playoff. I just – I don't know what it's going to look like. I think we're going to see an automatic bid for conference champions and probably three at-large. And those at-large spots, you know, I think everyone will be fighting for the quote-unquote Cinderella. But, again – I would not think of a Cinderella as just a non-Power 5 conference as much as it is any team that's not recruiting in the top 15 in the country on an annual basis.
0: I would I would love to see them include one group of five school. And, it, and traditionally, it's been Boise State. You would think the last, you know, several years, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, – UCF, but I, I think that would be interesting because one of the great college football games I remember, Joel, and I know you remember it, is Boise State's upset of Oklahoma and how creative they were yeah. offensively, and and um, that was great theater.
1: Yeah, and and remember before Utah was in the Pac-12, they beat an Alabama team in the Sugar Bowl. Um, you know, so we we've seen a few of those, and and you're right, UCF beat Auburn a couple of years ago. I think people would love to see that, and 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 at least give them a chance. And, and we'll see. And I think if they do grow the playoff, there's going to be a strong push to make an automatic qualifier out of the group of five, not from one particular league, but from the highest group of five uh, ranked team, as long as they're, let's say, you know, there'd be some minimum, as long as they're in the top 12 in the country or 15 in the country. And we're not just throwing a team that's unranked that happens to be the top group of five team.
0: A quick timeout and we'll continue on with Joel Clatt. Got to tell you about my friends at Ideal Home Loans. They have been helping people save money for two decades now. Brent Ivinson's team listens and then they lend and they are marvelous at what they do. It's why they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. I have sent them a number of people through the years and every one of them have been terrifically satisfied throughout their process. In fact, I just sent a good friend to them recently. And uh, as I've told you on other occasions, I have utilized their services several times as well. It is Ideal Home Loans. You can reach them at 303-867-7000. 303-867-7000. They're going to save you a bunch of money. You're going to be happy you gave them a call. Ideal Home Loans. Hey Joel, a couple things. I I've heard you go off on this, and I and I am in lockstep with you. They have to tear the targeting rule. We're throwing kids out who are, you know, not doing. Something with malice on their mind or or the intent to injure they 're trying to make a good football play, and obviously how you hit and how you you know I, I was t- told to you know you lead with your face mask your head up, see what you hit that sort of thing you have to tackle differently but we 're throwing kids out and penalizing kids for what are you know pretty good hits, I can understand where where safety issues and, and you had a severe concussion at the end of your college career. you would know better than anybody. But we can't be throwing kids out because there was contact and somehow that the helmet may have been involved a little bit. I think they should tear it as well
1: well I, I, I you know I think that we need to make uh, make a process to where we continue to encourage safe play by penalizing certain types of hits or contact. And yet we're also affording kids the opportunity to play hard. And if incidentally they happen to commit one of those fouls, we're not just throwing them out of the game automatically as if they're diving around like a missile trying to use the crown of their helmet as a weapon. I think those two things are very different things. And, and the majority of the time, what I see is, is, is targeting fouls that happen in what I would call, Drew, like the normal course of football, kind of the normal course of football action. There's there's clearly not intent there, but he does happen to, you know, hit forcibly the head or neck area on a defenseless player, so on and so forth. And I think that there are some, some clear indicators, and I already mentioned one, which is crown of the helmet. If you're using the crown of your helmet as a weapon, I'm fine with you being ejected. I really am. You know, everyone thinks they're like, oh, you just want to do away with targeting. No, that's not the case. I think targeting can stay as long as we clean it up. And so that we're making sure that players that are doing or trying to do the right thing that incidentally commit these fouls aren't thrown out of the game, because I think that that's wrong, in particular when you're taking a look at, like this season, the limited opportunities that they're going to get to play, and then we're taking away not only that half that they get thrown out in, but the next half of football, whether that's the second half or the first half of the next game. I just don't agree with it. I think that we need to take a hard hard look at what actually makes the game safer because I, I will tell you this, and I got some major flack for this, for saying this on a broadcast, but I absolutely believe it. I believe that quarterbacks are not taught like they were in the past. When I was coming up, we were taught that you could never hang guys out over the middle. You never threw a flat route into cover two, a jam corner. Like all these th- – there was these – Rules, hard rules of quarterback play that, that you, you didn't throw certain passes because not you couldn't complete them, you would get your guy killed, right? Hospital balls is what we would talk about. And guys would get benched for throwing too many hospital balls. Drew, we don't talk about that anymore. That's, that is not talked about in quarterback rooms. Quarterback coaches don't suggest the guys don't throw that. They 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 talk about not necessarily like hey just throw it in there but I believe that we've got a whole generation of quarterbacks that don't understand how to protect their receivers. They're just trying to make the throw and fit it into precarious spots regardless. And they're not doing it with malice or thinking to themselves like oh oh well if he gets blown up they've just been raised with the fact that like well that's a penalty and 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 a benefit for us. So, you know, that's—I think—that's an unintended consequence, and, and people say so like, no, no quarterback is trying to get his his wide receiver blown up. Yes, that's obviously the case, but he's not being taught not to, right? So, like, there's a difference in there, and, and so that's why I think I'm I'm most passionate about this this rules. We need to take better care of the players uh, and and their opportunities to play the game.
0: One of the things that I've become passionate about, and it's really not just this year, it's been for a number of years, and it it pertains more to the NFL because in college football, it's still a 15-yard penalty. uh, And I know... You know, everybody knows you're you're a former quarterback, but your take on PIs in the NFL because to me they have to be clear and obvious. If you're going to throw a a a PI call on every rule now favors the offense anyhow. And you're going to go give a team a first down at the one yard line, or give a team a 35 yard gain because there was, you know, some hand fighting, and it almost always goes against the defensive back. Uh, I would like to see. It's not really a change. It, it, it would, in terms of rule, it's a change in how it's adjudicated.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one, right? Because it's so subjective, and and you know, they're supposed to throw that flag if if there's a clear um like impeding of the ability to catch the ball and and sometimes i just don't feel i feel like they take that too far right it's the closest thing to basketball style officiating that we have in football because because it's so subjective and so maddening um i don't know how to fix it you know to to be honest with you i, I i've been in officials conferences and 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 breakouts and and listen to them talk about it and the bottom line is is that is an incredibly difficult foul to call. And I think what I've started to realize and come to grips with, Drew, is that pass interference in football is the same thing as a strike zone in baseball. We all think it should be very clearly defined, but the fact is, is that every home plate umpire is going to have just a little bit different definition of the strike zone. And it's incumbent on the players, in particular the hitters and then certainly the pitchers as well, to understand how the strike zone is being called that night and adjust accordingly. Um, So I I guess that would be my best analogy.
0: Well, I'd be remiss if I I let you get out of here and get on with your day. If I didn't ask you to... Tell me who you think will be the last one standing this year. We, we've already described who, who the candidates are. And at some point, Clemson will get Trevor Lawrence back. And by the way, to your your five-star uh, point earlier, uh, the guy who's playing quarterback uh, against Notre Dame and the guy who played last week in the comeback against Boston College, he was a five-star recruit out of California. So <laughs> That's right. it, That's exactly it, right. it, it's not like they got me running out there behind Trevor Lawrence. So um, who, who's the last one standing, Joel?
1: Um, well, I. Hey, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think it's going to be Alabama, and here's why. I think that because there's three great teams, and then I think a pretty clear drop-off for the fourth team, it's going to pay huge dividends to be the number one seed. That's going to be a massive uh, deal because you, you're, like LSU a year ago, going to get a much weaker opponent like Oklahoma was a year ago versus Winston and Ohio State having to play just like a knockdown dragout. So I think it's going to be Alabama because I think they'll get the number one seed. When you go through a 10-game regular season SEC schedule and play an SEC championship game, potentially have to beat Georgia twice or Florida uh, in that SEC championship game, I think that they'll get the benefit of the doubt over a Clemson team with a weak ACC schedule and clearly uh, Ohio State with what appears to be a pretty weak Big Ten schedule, in particular if Wisconsin's unable to um, qualify based on number of games for the Big Ten championship game. So all of that leads me to believe that Alabama will probably be the number one seed and probably win the national championship. They've got a great defense, a really good quarterback, an aggressive offensive play caller. They can run it. I think that they're the most balanced and complete team in the sport.
0: It's a fair assessment, and you're never wrong selecting Alabama when it comes to winning national championships. (laughs)
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Hey, Joel, it's great catching up, man. Uh, again, I'm really thrilled for your success, and uh, I enjoy listening to you. You're on a number of platforms. I know you have your own podcast and, and have for uh, several years as well. Give that a plug before I get you out of here.
1: You got it. Well, listen, I've got Breaking the Huddle. Uh, that, that lives as a, um, a show on FS1. We do a, a social media version of that show. Obviously, you can see us on Big Noon Saturday. This week, we're going to have Arizona State at USC, 9 a.m. local. So uh, looking forward to all those things, man, and I appreciate you having me on.
0: You bet, man. Stay well. Enjoy those boys. Uh, My best to your family, and uh, we'll talk soon, man. Take care of yourself.
1: You got it. Thank you, Drew. Always appreciate it, man.
0: Well, I started out last week with Joel Cloud telling him, I know it sounds a little strange, but uh, that I was really proud of him. And he's a guy that that worked hard in football, and that's why he had success at Boulder. And he has worked his tail off in the broadcasting industry, and it's one of the great reasons he's had success there. So I'm proud of him. And uh, I learned stuff uh, from him, whether it's uh, watching him uh, call games or some of the information he passed along that's fascinating. Just now in the interview when he talked to, when he talked about – you know, the five-star players and where they end up. It's pretty obvious. I mean, right now, as I've said before, there's there's three tiers in college football. In the upper tier, it really only has a handful of teams in in that grouping, and, and you know uh, their names. But I'm really thrilled for what uh, what Joel has done and uh, appreciate him jumping on board on our Ideal Home Loans interview of the week. Going to get out of here with this. Speaking of college football. I saw this on social media the other day. It's the eight-year anniversary, or this week was, of Johnny Manziel leading Texas A&M to an upset over Alabama. And I remember probably nine years ago watching a game. I was probably getting ready to do a game of my own somewhere. I'm in a hotel room, and Texas A&M's on, and I'm watching this guy run around. It was when Manziel was a freshman, and I'm saying, wow, this guy's unbelievable, Throwing on the run, he's got nimble feet. He was a blast to watch, and and that was kind of his coming out party that year, and eventually he wins the Heisman Trophy. Really disappointing for me, and probably more so for him, that he wasn't mature enough to take his great talent and apply it at the NFL level, because those couple of years when he was running the show down in College Station, Texas— he was electric. And if I think back over all the college football I've watched and been able to broadcast the last 25, 30 years, he is easily one of the four or five uh, most exciting and enigmatic players I've seen. And I know it doesn't always translate to the NFL for a variety of reasons. And again, I think his maturity or lack thereof is one of the reasons that he didn't really uh, get a, a clear shot to produce at the NFL level. But boy, oh boy, when you talk about great college football players we've seen in the last, uh, as I said, 20, 25 years, he's near the top of the list. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Drew Goodman Podcast. We thank you, as always, for joining us. The website is thedrewgoodmanpodcast.com. That's hard to to follow. And uh, we'll have a great guest for you next week. Tell your friends about us. Subscribe, download, and uh, have a safe week, most importantly. We'll talk to you soon.